I'm Jeff Cohen. Eliza Bulow's Jewish journey weaves an intricate path through conversion and tragedy. It depended on tremendous faith along the way. With stops in New York, Israel, Russia, and ultimately Denver, this is one of the most fascinating stories you'll ever hear. So let's get started. Eliza, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Hi, thank you. So it's so nice of you to do this and give us some of your time you're in Denver today. Yes, I am. Very good. And I know we're going to get to how you ended up there, but we like to start at the beginning with the opening question of where you were born and raised to set some context. Well, I have a born but not a raised, <laughs> so that's part <laughs> of the context. Born in Madison, Wisconsin, but if you want to hear the list of raised, so Madison for a year, then Plattsburgh, New York, then Ithaca, New York, then Washington, D.C., each for a year as my father pursued postdoctoral education. And then he got a position as a professor at University of Rochester, so Rochester, New York, for a few years. Then he didn't get tenure. So we took a, a trip around the country for a year when I was 10, 1974, where we lived in Cleveland and Baltimore, Corona, California, Port and Portland, Oregon, studying interracial neighborhoods and desegregated housing. Then they came home, wrote a book about it, got divorced, and then we moved to Portland, Oregon, where I lived for three years, and then I moved to Jerusalem, so I don't have a raised, just born. <laughs> this is clearly the best example of how born and raised have to be separated into two questions, so thank you for that. Uh, let's now catch up on the piece of religion as you were moving around to these different places. Like, how were you being raised initially? So my parents were born into Protestant families, but were academics and children of the 60s, so they didn't fully accept the way they were raised, and they were looking, as many people were in the 60s, to find a new path. I think they started out while they were married in the church, not really being part of it. And then my mother's parents died shortly after, one, right after I was born. My mother's mother died when I was three months old. And then her father died when I was two years old. So that put her on the outs with God. She was pretty mad. And she had no parents to guide her in her relationship, either in her marriage or with God. So she was in deep mourning in my childhood, my whole early childhood. And so I think that impacted on the religious journey, too. So she didn't want a relationship with God, but she did want a relationship with meaning. And so civil rights became very important to them. In Washington, D.C., when we lived there, I think they heard Dr. Martin Luther King speak at the time. And then I think from Rochester, I remember going back with them at age four to the Poor People's Campaign March past the mall. I have vivid memories of that as a child. And knowing that we were doing important work in the world by not eating grapes or lettuce or, you know, going to demonstrations. My first day of kindergarten was teacher's strike. So my mother brought me to school to introduce me to my teacher and then put a sign in my hands and we picketed with the teachers. So that like took us on the outs of religion. But I think as her two daughters, I'm the oldest, started to grow up a little bit, she sort of felt like just from an academic point of view, we should give them some literacy. And the literacy of this country is Christianity. And that's our family's heritage. So really just, again, from an academic perspective, there was some desire to engage in something religious. So then a search began. Okay, and where did that search lead? What did your family settle on as a, as a place to go and connect with? So they tried a few different churches, formal churches, but I think informal is what worked for them best. So a house church. So in the 1970s, house church was a thing. I think it was the equivalent to the Reform Chavara movement, actually. Eight, ten families that gathered together in the finished basement of somebody's home could be rotating. And we had a minister who was like the leader of that. And it was mostly human potential movement, self-actualization, Jonathan Livingston Seagull kind of stories and family community, singing songs and having a lunch together and 
Um, and so we did that pretty regularly on Sundays. And then very occasionally we would go to a black church for the cultural experience, have ribs after that, and sing gospel music, that kind of thing. That's till age nine. <laughs> and so you, you painted a really clear picture of how your parents, and particularly your mom, felt about religion. What were you thinking during those early years of what you were being exposed to? How were you reacting to it? So the early years, I would say till age nine, I wasn't really questioning it, kind of enjoying it. But by 10, I decided that's not it. Something here is not, doesn't smell true to me. And I couldn't have put my finger on it at the time at all. But I knew for sure that's not what I wanted. And the whole concept of Jesus didn't sit right with me and God altogether. Look at, because I was raised as a Protestant, I think, I needed to go through an atheist time because it was so clear that Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are all one. Like I knew we were monotheists. I had asked my mother about that, even though there were three. So how does three and one work together? Somehow they do. You know, like ice, water, and steam. It's three faces of one thing. Um, <laughs> But anyway, it didn't work for me. Like, I think the Jesus thing took me out of the God relationship because if it had to be together, so it didn't work for me. So I became an atheist at 10. What's really interesting to me about that, I've I've interviewed enough people who give the same kind of answer that you give, but they tell me that they're 18, 20, 25 at the time that they come to this realization about how they feel about religion. What was it about you that you're able to come to it at such a young age? I still don't understand it. I mean, the only thing I can say is uh, I'm here for a reason and Hashem called me forward and he did it quietly. It wasn't in a dream. Elisa, Elisa is my English name. Elisa stepped forward, right? It wasn't that, but clearly he was creating a path for me to step forward in so many places in so many ways. There's so much hashkacha pratit, so much divine intervention along the way. Now I could look back and see clearly, piece by piece by piece, Hashem was calling me forward. Okay, so then what happened religiously for you? And what happened with your relationship with your parents as you're telling them, like, this place that you're taking me to, it's not, it's not feeling right to me. I'm not connecting with it. So I was labeled as a difficult child from an early age. And now, with all the work that I do, I see I was probably a traumatized child from an early age mm-hmm. between the schools that I went to, which were very challenging many challenges in those schools and uh, many opportunities to remember how small and vulnerable I was in those spaces and yet still had to go to those schools because that was part of my parents' political statement. And then having a mother who was so emotionally distracted by her own deep mourning. So now I can see I was a child of unrest. But you also just said earlier about them not being together. So is this around the same time period that their relationship wasn't working out? So it turns out... There was a lot of instability in marriages inside that congregation. And my parents were one of the marriages that were unstable at the time. But I think in the 70s, it was a thing to question and re-question. And they were in the tide of people who questioned and re-questioned their allegiances and their need to have exclusive relationships. And it definitely impacted on their marriage. And eventually, their marriage fell apart. Then they start to seek recoupling which shifts their energy for teenage girls in the house or tweenage girls if the parents aren't stable, but they're seeking new mates. So the whole energy of the household and the parent relationship is unstable for the developing, I guess, womanhood of teenagers to see their parents now dating 
and bringing new relationships into their lives and into their home. So now as an adult Jewish educator, I understand that taharata mishpacha, what we call family purity laws, they're not called purity laws of a woman or of a couple. It's all about the creative ingenuity of the family and it's created in privacy by the couple. So now I would say looking back, I can see that even though it was private and I didn't know what was going on at the time, the um, dissolution of my parents' marriage definitely had, and because it was in a way tied into the church, I'm sure had a vibrational impact on the way I was thinking about the truth of the church and the stability of it and did I want to be a part of what they were a part of. And the answer was a clear no. Right. And now you have two things going on at the same time. You have your parents trying to start new lives. And you're also at this inflection point for yourself of what you believe religiously and trying to connect. And your parents aren't as focused on you. So it's it's like giving you this freedom to explore with no one necessarily like on top of you like parents might be with their teenage kids. So how do you, I don't want to say like take advantage of that opportunity, but you have this freedom to really explore and see what resonates with you. So what, what did you go about doing to try to connect? Yeah, I really did have that freedom. And so I continued with some of the things that we had started. Jonathan Livingston Siegel was an important book in the house church context. But the next book was Illusions by Richard Bach, which is about manifesting your own destiny. And I was very into that. Like, how am I going to manifest what I need and go forward? I was all of 11 and strong <laughs> and proud and ready to take on the world. So um, 11 and 12 was really about that. Um, manifesting and gathering the information that I needed. I mean, we're talking the mid-70s, so there's no internet. <laughs> but there's the library, and there's people to talk to. And I read and thought and read and thought, and I, I gobbled books. I, actually, an important set of books for me at that time, believe it or not, was the Chronicles of Narnia. Wow. And I really feel like, still today, like I stepped through the wardrobe into an alternate reality that I love being a part of, and that is full of meaning. And that was the world of Narnia, is a world of meaning and order, or of restoring meaning and order to a world. I had no clue as a child who had been raised in that paradigm that it was a Christian allegory at all until I read that later on and then reread the books to my children. I'm like, oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get that at all. But what I, I did get the spirituality of it, that we are people who can make changes and have agency in our own lives and connect ourselves to meaning and purpose and that we can affect it. We can affect meaning and purpose in our lives and we can make it happen. So that was an important journey for me through those Chronicles of Narnia. So in listening to your story so far, as everything seems to be happening earlier than it would for most people, I'm going to take an educated guess that Judaism also comes into your life in this story sooner than it would have in a typical story arc for someone. Is that true? Yeah, it definitely did. When I was 14, when I started ninth grade, I had already been through my atheist period and and looking around for other paradigms for meaning, sampling a few different other things in the world from meditation to, I don't know, chakra healing workshops, etc. But um, in the beginning of ninth grade, I sort of had a spiritual experience. And I thought that's so weird. How could I have a spiritual experience? Like, how could I feel God if there isn't a God in the world? But my mother had taught me as a child that all religions are paths to the same destination, and we just all walk on different paths. So I thought, oh, if that's true, maybe just Christianity isn't the right path for me. Maybe there's another path that will work better that does have God in it, but that's not Christian. So I decided to learn more about different religions. So I just went to our public school library. I was in public high school, performing arts high school, Jefferson High School in Portland, Oregon. 
and I just went to the library and there was a, a small shelf of books on religion. So I just decided I'll just read across the shelf. And um, when I got to the book, To Be a Jew by Rabbi Chaim Halevi Donan, I was like, this is it. I totally felt like I just, I was home. It clicked so strongly like nothing else ever had. So um, I was very clear that I was Jewish. I announced to my parents, I'm Jewish. And they're like, that's nice. Last week I was a Scientologist. The week before that it was a chakra healer. The week before that it was like, <clears throat> I'm like, but yeah, but I'm serious. Like, I'm Jewish. I know I am. That's what this is. I didn't know any Jews. I just read that book. But I knew I was home. What was it that was telling you, I actually think I found my home? Like, what were you really feeling that said these other things I've been dabbling with weren't the thing and there's something here that just really feels right? I just knew I was home. I knew it on a, such a deep level. Again, I didn't know Jews. I had met a Jew here or there, college professor, friend of my father's, or a classmate here and there who wasn't religious at all. But I didn't know any observant Jews. Did you even know, wait, did you even know there were levels of Judaism? When you say Judaism speaks to me, Reform, conservative, orthodox, you're not even realizing that there's these different levels. No clue. My sister, when we lived in Rochester had babysat for a family that kept kosher, so a Jewish family. So I, I had heard of Jews who kept kosher. I knew there was a meat-dairy thing. Um, <laughs> it was interesting because as part of our house church, they wanted to do a Seder. And so they found some Jewish families who would host members of the church for the Seder. So I went to one, and I was probably nine, and I was given a wine glass because, you know, it's a Seder. And they asked me what kind of wine I liked, and I'm nine, so I said white wine because in my family... For dinner, my parents would have a glass of wine, and we got to have a wine glass, and white wine was milk. So, uh. so when they poured white wine into my glass, I'm like, no, not that. <laughs> like, I white, it's white whiter wine. than this. White, white, like milk. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, this is a meat meal. You can't have milk. I'm like, what? <laughs> I hadn't heard of that. So, um, yeah, so I had no, I didn't, I had never heard of Reform, Conservative, Orthodox at the time, but I read this book and I knew there, now there were food things and holiday things and Jewish and Gentile things and prayer things that had the Shema in there with the first paragraph, say these words every morning and every night. So I started to say these words every morning and every night and then my own prayer after that. So that was my prayer ritual that I started with. But I, I'm um, sensing that these little ways that you're starting to like experiment with Judaism, that you're going to very quickly accelerate what you're doing, but you're still pretty young. So how do you try to advance how you're feeling about Judaism to the next level, given where you're at age-wise and, and with your parents? Well, my father was remarried at this point, and my mother was re-relationshiped, but not married. So I had step-siblings in one house, and I called the other house leap-siblings because it was further than a step, but they still, we lived together. So I had step-siblings and leap-siblings and a step-mother and a leap-father. And my parents were very busy in their lives, resetting things up. So yeah, I was. And I started to get nice, easier to live with as I became more interested in Judaism. I think also as I was getting older, but I just, I wasn't as contrary. And so I think the combination of them wanting to set up their own lives and me not being as annoying um, <laughs> just made it very easy for them to say, whatever you're doing, keep doing that. It's working. Because it seems to be working out. <laughs> so... Um, so my mother, you know, in high school, Saturday Night Live was a thing. It was, I think, relatively new. And it was a humor that I didn't really get at 14 and 15, but my friends did. My friends are a little bit older, like juniors and seniors in the drama club that I was a part of. There was quite a bit of language on that show and quite a little bit of language that a girl in high school likes to use to sound cool. And my mother was not down for it. 
So she would say, you know, Elisa, you're so beautiful. When you use words like those, it takes away from your beauty. I'm like, I don't care. It makes me cool. I'm fine <laughs> with that. So she tried again. Okay, Elisa, you're so smart. When you use words like that, it takes away from the perception of your intelligence. I'm like, I don't care. It's cool. <laughs> like I'm using these words. Cool trumps everything. Cool trumps everything. But when I came back from the mikvah at age 16, when I had converted, and I used one of those words, she said, are those the words a daughter of Israel should be using? Mm. And that one probably stuck. It did. It did. Because I realized uh, it's not about me and my coolness. It's about what I represent. And I can't use these words anymore. So wait, so, there's a piece yeah. of the story we have to fill in now because you just said I came back from the mikvah and, and converted. And you said age 16. So right around that time, did you start to learn about the levels and decide you're going for an Orthodox conversion? Or did you do like a reform conservative one, and later on there'd be a sort of like a second conversion? I started conservative just because I did finally meet a Jewish woman. I needed to somehow click into the community. So I did meet a woman who I had a lot of questions for, and she did not know all the answers. But she invited me over. She said, you know, sometime if you're interested, why don't you come on a Friday afternoon after school? We'll make a Friday night dinner together, and you can come to the synagogue with me and see what it's like. I was like, great. How about this week? So I went that week. When I got to the synagogue, I found out that it's conservative, and then I started to learn, like, reform, conservative, orthodox. So I asked her, like, you know, what's the difference between reform, conservative, and orthodox? And she told me clearly that reform pretty much doesn't know anything about Judaism, and they don't do anything. And orthodox are, like, they're from Europe, like, lost in the dusty paths of history. (laughs) Um, But conservative is the golden middle path Mm -hmm. and the right way to be Jewish. And it was 1978. Conservative at that time was a very big movement. Um, It was really a very active congregation. So I signed up for everything. You know, I was 15 by this time. And um, so I signed up for every adult ed class that I could possibly attend. And I signed up for the teen study group with a rabbi. And I signed up for the, you know, youth group also. So I was in the group, but I was also a madricha for the younger kids. Like everything. I signed up for the whole show. I even tried signing up for Chavar Kedisha. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they thought I was too young for that. Um, but the more I learned, the more I just loved it. And I went to the rabbi shortly after I started attending and said, you know, I want to convert. He said, that's very nice. But you're 15, so no. You can continue attending services and be engaged. That's fine. And I did. And then that summer, I heard a sermon about summer camp and how important summer camp is for Jewish continuity. And I was working that summer, you know, I was 15, freshman, it was my freshman summer. So I was an adult and um, I had a full-time job and I was making whatever minimum wage for the whole summer, which adds up when you have no expenses. So I had a bank account and towards the end of the summer, I hear the sermon about how important summer camp is and Camp Salma Schechter is every child should go and every grandparent should fund. And you know, if you want your kids to be Jewish forever, it's Camp Salma Schechter. And I was like, I want to be Jewish forever. I think I need to go to Camp Solomon Schechter. So I had enough money to go. So I signed up for the teen session at the end of the summer. A 10-day session included two Shabbases. And, um, but I just thought, I'm just going to, it'll be my test. I'll just see, is this what I really want? Can I really blend? So I went to Camp Solomon Schechter and I loved it. I feel like that is, in a way, it was like probably the the beginning of the soul transformation. I literally felt like some of the ornery, difficult, tangled energy inside me leave and a calmer sense of presence and self enter while I was in camp. And I saw Shabbos in action twice or Shabbos in action. 
So I was able to go home and start keeping Shabbos a little bit. And I saw kashas in action. I came home and I started separating meat and milk. My parents tolerated that. And I didn't do kosher meat, but I separated meat and milk. And I, and I tried to keep Shabbos to the best of my ability at the time. <laughs> so are you, are you thinking at this point that conservative Judaism is, is where it's at? It sounds like no. No, just you're Judaism. not. Even though you're getting, you're getting exposed to a conservative shul, and Solomon Schechter has a lot of conservative people yeah. who are there. But you think that right. there's more even at that age. I mean, I guess I knew that there was more, but I didn't. I was very engaged at the time, trying to become more engaged. I just... It, for me, it was Jewish. I wasn't like married to conservative, and I wasn't scared of Orthodox. I did one time go to the Reform Synagogue and realized, no, <laughs> this is so not for me. There's like, but I really loved the intellectual engagement that I was getting in the conservative synagogue because the rabbi really did have a study group, and he was helping the teens learn more, and I just loved it. Um, as much as I could learn, I loved the learning, and I, I it was almost every night of the week that I was in some class there, so I loved that aspect of it. And I knew I wanted to go to Israel when I was a junior in high school. And so you also mentioned that you ended up going to the mikveh, but you had this rabbi telling you you're only 15, you can't convert. But then is it at 16 where you're allowed to do it? Yes. So I turned my birthday's in February. So when I turned 16 in the middle of my 10th grade year, and I had been already going to the shul for a year and a half. So that's when he said, okay, yes, I guess I'd been going to shul for a year. But I was already engaged in like learning about Jewish things for a year and a half. He said, okay, you're 16, and you're still here. You're still interested. You're still pushing. Okay, you could. Yeah, so I went to the mikvah then. And immediately, having achieved that goal, the next goal was bat mitzvah, of course. I wanted to be able to lead services and, and lane. So I started studying for that because it was a conservative shul, so you could. So you check the bat mitzvah box and then off to Israel? Like you're just like methodically going through each of these steps, mikvah, bat mitzvah, Israel. Yes. Yeah, well, of course, I started the Israel trip a little bit before the bat mitzvah because I had to have that, you know, lined up and ready. Right. But yeah, yeah. So Israel for um, 11th grade. And I thought I would come back after 11th and then graduate as a junior, but with my class. What kind of school was it? It was called Mechlel at Breweria. So I decided uh, when I go to Israel, I'm not going to tell anybody that I converted because my rabbi did set me down before I left and said, you know, not everybody in Israel accepts a conservative conversion. I just want to let you know that. So I knew my parents still thought this phase will pass. And I knew that not every Jew in the congregation thought it's going to stick because I'm so young. Um, And now the rabbi is telling me that not everybody holds by the conversion that I underwent. So I thought, you know, better just to keep it to myself. Nobody needs to know that I converted, number one. And number two, nobody needs to know I'm 16. You know, like, really, like, everybody thinks 16-year-olds are unstable and still exploring the world. Not me. I have it down. <laughs> so you basically went like you were a, a 20-year-old, always Jewish girl. Was right. Your, I tried. Your persona. I tried. And then I realized I was completely out of my depth <laughs> once I arrived. And I wanted to make sure I got my conversion right, too. So I, I um, double-dipped. I went to the mikvah again with the Beit Din of Yerushalayim. During that year while you were in Israel... Yeah, right. pretty much right away. It just took a few months. Yeah. And so how long were you there? I was in Israel for a year. And by the end of the year, I knew there's no going back. Just no way I could possibly finish high school in Portland, Oregon, or live with my family again. Not only did I love the independence, but I was committed to a very halachic life. There's just no way I was going to try to swing it in the household that I emerged from. So I wanted to stay for another year. Um, just thinking it would be the one extra year. And where would the money come from? Except for Hashem arranged that so nicely. 
because um, Hadassah, women's organization, supported a program called Youth Aliyah. So I came with a year's worth of tuition, but then found out that since I was under 18, they would cover half. And the second year, I was still under 18. So my one year of tuition covered the two halves that I needed, and Hadassah covered the other two halves. So I was able to stay for two years. And then at the end of those two years, I thought I would go to um, Hebrew U, start college. It turned out I needed to serve the country first, so joined the Army. Is this also the time like a special someone comes into your life, or is that no. post-Army? It's not that there weren't people that I was interested in along the way. I mean, I was a regular American girl who, you know, in sixth grade had a boyfriend, whatever that means in sixth grade. In high school, there was a few people I was interested in, but no special someone's, certainly just a regular, plain old American high school, whatever. And I'm so glad I left high school after 10th grade and didn't get entangled in the rest of high school and especially performing arts high school and everything that that entails. I was left out of that and so thankful that I don't have that in my background. But no, there wasn't a special someone until I was 19, really, when I met my husband. Okay, yeah, but were, Army comes I, yeah. first. Army comes first, right. Okay, so what are your thoughts of going into the Army now that you've been on this religious journey? Because you hear like so many stories of what it's like to be secular versus religious in the Army. So were you at all worried about how you were living your life now and what that would mean in an Army environment? Yes. It became clear that I needed to serve the country from the interview that I had at um, Hebrew U, where they said, no, we're not going to take you to an, into our program because you're 18 and you haven't served the country. So I really thought about Sherut Lumi. I thought about how I'll serve the country, first of all. And I, even at that time, Israel's PR in the States was bad. And I thought, okay, I'm a budding photographer. My father and stepmother were both photographers. They had a dark room in the basement. I knew how to operate the equipment, you know. I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'll take pictures of Israel and Israeli life. I'll do a slideshow with music, and I'll take that around to college campuses in the States and talk about how great Israel is. And then I'll do that for a year, take the pictures, deliver the lecture, and then I'll come back and I'll be able to answer the question in the interview, what have you done to serve the country? I'll say this, I did this. So I started doing that. And as part of that, I started taking ballet again because I went to a performing arts high school. So I took an Israeli ballet class. This was all Israelis. And I was the oldest in the class because I was 18. And that's where I realized like everyone who's 18 does something at this age that I'm not doing. And if I want to stay here, I should do that thing. So my choice then would be Sherwood Lumi or the Army. Sherwood Lumi for religious girls, Army in general for not religious girls. And I thought, okay, I could do Sherwood Lumi, but if I'm planning on staying in Israel, what does this country need from me? So I thought, well, a thing that this country needs, better relations between religious Jews and non-religious Jews. And I could do that in the army. I could be a religious girl in the army. Like if I became religious in a, a drug-infested high school in Portland, Oregon, chances are I could stay religious in the army in Israel, closing the gap of the distance between religious and non-religious Jews in Israel. So that was what I had in mind as my contribution in the army, was to be a religious girl in the army. So I joined the army to be able to do that. Oh, so let me ask you a two-part question about this. One, just to be clear what role you ended up having in the army. And then two, I would be curious what happened to your religious growth during that period, not being in the kind of environment where you're surrounded by all religious people. So you have these other you know, perspectives around you. So there is the risk of going off the path that you've been on. So what's the role you had and, and how did your religion grow or uh, not during that time period? I served in Nachal. So Nachal stands for Noar Chalutz Lochem. 
young pioneering warriors. So at that time, the job of Nachal was to set up settlements. And at that time, in the early 80s, when Menachem Begin, Allah was the prime minister, it was a government program to set up settlements. So this was part of the army's work, and it was, it was seen as part of the Zionist enterprise. It was holy work, the holy Zionist enterprise, to set up settlements, to create spaces for Jews to live in the land of Israel. And that was the job of Nachal, was to set up settlements. So it was agriculturally based. Um, it was a longer service than regular army service. It had a, an extra pre-service service where we would work on a kibbutz or a moshav. So we were connected to a moshav, Moshav Yonatan, in the Golan Heights. And we did agricultural work first before basic training, and then a longer basic training because we were actually setting up a settlement. So at that time, girls weren't allowed to go into battle. But if you're setting up a settlement, you might be attacked. So instead of the three-week basic training, which most girls got at the time, we had two months. And we learned three different guns, an M16, a Galil, and Uzi. Uzis are girls' guns. You spray from their waist. You don't have to aim, even though we did have to aim and practice that. I tried to get out of gun practice as much as possible because if you fire your gun... It gets dirty. And then you have to clean it and pass inspection. <laughs> so I would try to pull KP on those days <laughs> and not fire. <laughs> so I didn't have to clean it. <laughs> you learn these tricks. Right. Right. Um, so what happened to religious observance? Actually, I went in with a garin. So there were two different types of garins. A garin dati, that's a religious group. And a garin torani, that's an even more religious group. And as a garin, we were careful in all the laws of Shabbat and Kashrut, and we were careful in the laws of Shabbat. We would make shiurim for each other on Shabbos. Look, there was, there was one in charge of setting the table, clearing the table, giving the shir. That was just part of the regular order of things, is that we were a religious garin doing religious things. And many of those in the garin paired up at the end, you know, married out of the garin. As they exited the army, they got married. And what happens to you as you exit? What's the plan post-army? So I didn't actually make it to a post-army plan because I met my husband in the middle of the <laughs> army. <laughs> After how long had you been in the army at that point? I was in the army for about a year when we met, but we didn't get married right away. And he was in law school in the States. So I got what's called a dechiat root, a deferral of service for six months so that I could go back to the States. And I thought we'd get married during that six months, except for his parents then told him, his father said, you know, I already have a wife, and I support mine. You'll need to support yours, so you need to graduate first. And I was like, what? That's two years away. How is that <laughs> going to happen? It was torture. So I had to go back at the end of the six months. And a deferral of service means they just take those six months and put it on the end of your service. So I continued serving for another several months until I got a year-long deferral of service, and then we got married inside that year. So two questions about uh, this fine young man that you meet while you're in the army. You said that he was in law school in the States. So first question, why was he in Israel? And secondly, what was his religious background at the time that you met? So he was raised in a, I would say, Sabbath-centered home. It wasn't Shomer Shabbos, but it was Shabbos every week and kosher. So they were conservative, strong, traditional and then he went on his own journey, and he finished college in the University of Madison, Wisconsin, which is where I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's also Hashem just arranges things, right? Right. But in those last two years of college, which are the only two that he did at Madison, that's where he met the Chabad rabbi there, Rabbi Michal Torsky, in Milwaukee. So he became fully Shomer Shabbos through that experience. So I met him probably just cresting off his Chabad high. He still had a beard. He still wore wool tzitzis at the time. He was still drinking chalvisrol at the time. 
And he met me in my uniform. And he was very clear who he was going to marry. He wanted a girl with Yiddish-speaking European parents. Sounds like you. And I was, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was looking for somebody who would never take me out of Israel. I had made up my mind. I was not dating anybody who spoke English, even as a second language. Like, that's just not happening. I'm not taking the chance. And God left all the way <laughs> to our chuppah as he married somebody with non-Jewish parents. And I married somebody with a gorgeous English Right. So you each and, had this um, list of deal breakers that you crumpled up because love conquers all, basically. It does. It does. We knew pretty much right away. I mean, there was instant chemistry when we met, which we misread. And so it was negative chemistry. Um, but we had it figured out by like pretty much the next day that something interesting was happening over here. And we knew within three weeks. And I was still in the army, so we only saw each other on Shabbos. But first of all, Shem arranged that too. Who gets out of the army every Shabbos? Not most people, but I did at this time every week. And... Um, while he was in Israel for his sister's wedding. So, and that's how we met because I had this, I was sharing a one bedroom apartment with another girl who had made Aliyah. So I'm in the army, she's working. So one bedroom is enough room for us. I am only home on the weekends and only every other weekend usually. And a girl from Bravender's from Mechalaburia called us up. She said, I'm getting married in three months. I just, I gotta get out of the dorms just for three months. Please, oh please, can I just move in with you for three months? I'll sleep on the couch when you're home from the army. Please, oh please. Great, so she moves in with her stuff and her traffic, which includes her brother, who I met, because it was her brother in her apartment, which is my apartment in, yeah, God runs the world. Elisa, there's already been so many compelling twists and turns in your story, even being halfway through, I can only imagine what's going to happen in the second half. So can you come back next week and just finish off the story for us and tell us where it goes? I'd be happy to. Be my pleasure. Thank you. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.